0: All right, Romans chapter 8, if the last hour was complicated and difficult enough, this one will be even more so. All right, Romans chapter 8, let's start here. Okay, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8 and then when we start working through this it will all make sense, but I'm going to begin here. I don't know if anyone paid any attention this week, but this week the Southern Baptist Convention elected a new president in the midst of all the other controversy going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and there's lots of concerns over critical race theory, over the fact that the largest uh, Southern Baptist church, uh, Rick Warren's church, ordained three women to ministry. And so the Southern Baptist church, is you know, a lot of people are on the verge of a possible split. Okay, So a lot of things going on. So they elect a new president. Everything, Everyone thought everything was going great and wonderful because they, uh, most people feel that they hired, or they hired, they elected a moderate to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now... The reason they think that that's a good thing is because maybe he can come along and try to somehow appease the people who are more conservative and appease the people who are more liberal and somehow hold the congregation together because the Southern Baptists lost like something like 400,000 people in one calendar year, I think in 2020. So the congregation, the denomination is losing people at large numbers. And so they're really, really worried about what to do. So they elect a president and everyone thinks, okay, this is a wonderful thing. And then at the convention, what they call messengers, those are the people who are sent to the convention, uh, Albert Moeller is speaking, and the person stands up and asks Albert Moeller a question, basically like, hey, Dr. Moeller, you've been very influential, but what in the world is your school doing, and what kind of people, what kind of literature and, and material are you handing out? And the reason why is the person we just elected president is a graduate from your school, and the person who graduated from your school on his church website has a definition of the Trinity that says the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three parts of the one God. Which is complete blatant heresy. All right? Complete blatant heresy. So you're like, whoa, what, what, what is going on? Well, Dr. Albert Moeller didn't really answer the question. He goes, well, the, the guy is sound. The guy is sound. Well, right after that, the new elected president stands up and takes the mic. Well, you're like, okay. This is, he's going to clarify and make sure that he gives us an actual correct understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. And he stands up and guess what He does. No, he doesn't even address it. He just starts talking about how wonderful Albert Moeller is and Albert Moeller turns around and talks about how wonderful he is and they ignore the question. 45 seconds, according to some sources, between 45 seconds and maybe two minutes, guess what happens on the church website? The phrase deleted. They don't even go through Southern Baptist Church Structure, which would require a doctrinal statement to be changed, would you have to form a committee, and the committee would bring it in front of the congregation. They just violate the whole rule and just delete it. Just delete it. So, based on what we know, the Southern Baptist Convention now has a president who is a heretic when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, so everyone who's in a Southern Baptist church should leave the Southern Baptist church immediately because the whole denomination is is called into question. Now, the reason I bring all of that up is not because we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, but because we are talking about the doctrine of God. Now, here is what is very important to note. People all around the world say that they believe in... God. Something, depending on the statistics, 70% to 80% of the population say that they believe in God. It's very, It's very. Now, you can find atheists, uh, you can find agnostics who say, they may not say they believe in God, they'll say they don't know if a God exists, but for the most part, still, the dominant belief around the world is a belief in God, or we should say, a God. Now, you think, well, that's wonderful. That that, that should mean everyone should be somewhat unified in in the belief. Well, you can be unified if all you say is you believe in God, but when does disunity begin? As soon as you begin to do what? Define the God you believe in. Now, you have a couple options when it comes to defining the God you believe in. Okay? What are some of the options when it comes to defining the God you believe in? You can define your God. Right. When when you be if you begin to define your God, then ultimately that God is simply a creation of you. So ultimately, who are you actually worshiping? Yourself. All right. So it's just be it's as Anton LaVey says in the Satanic Bible, why go through the pretense? We worship ourselves. Why not just live like we worship ourselves? Just Just put it into practice. But so, if you define God like well, and you'll hear people say this, even Christians, my God, would never. My God, well, are you talking the God you made in your backyard today? You know, like what, what do you? It's not your God, like you own own God. No, it's the idea of who is God. So either you define it, or what? What's another option? some source defines whom God is, and then you have to state that that source is what? Authoritative. And then are, then can you change, if that, author, if that source is authoritative, then are you, you're left to go with what that God says, correct? You may not like it. Yes? All right, look. Okay, as a Christian, right, I've talked about it time and time again. I, do we believe scripture is authoritative? Yes. Do I like everything in it? Absolutely not. Now I know I'm not supposed to say that as a pastor. I don't. Now I'll say it in a sermon, right? I'll be like, I, I hate this. I don't even know what's going. On. I I doesn't make any. It drives me crazy. I mean, look, it doesn't take it doesn't take very long for me to start having problems with the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Okay, everything's going wonderful. So God's in charge. He creates everything. Everything's great. I get to Genesis three, and the next thing you know, here comes some serpent crawling into the garden. I'm like, wait a minute, time out. If God's all-powerful, why is this thing coming into the garden? If God created everything, should he have control over the creation he created? So why is this thing coming into the garden, right? And then when I find out that the serpent is being used by Satan, which is a being created by whom? God, well, wait a minute. Why would he create a being who's ultimately going to rebel? And even if he even if he knew it was going to rebel, after it rebelled, why wouldn't he destroy the creature and not let it come to earth to attack his creation? And then after Adam and Eve falls into sin, why would he allow them to continue bringing people on the earth if he knew that every person after that would be born a sinner and their natural uh, actions would be... Sinful. Why would he allow? I mean, I got a million questions, right? A million questions. It doesn't make any sense. But I don't, you don't believe the Bible because it makes sense. You believe the Bible because you believe it's authoritative, even if it goes against something that you don't like. There's plenty of things I don't like, right? Like, if you gave me a marker there, I'd go through, start changing all kinds of stuff, right? Okay, well, whoa, I have a problem with that sin. Let's remove that one. Let's remove I would just start removing anything I have a problem with. But that's not the way it works. And that's not the way it works with the doctrine of God. Our job is to figure out what the Bible teaches us about God. But when we start doing that, does it become controversial? Absolutely. And we're in a section of scripture where it is, bound, it is filled with controversy. And that's Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, turn there really quick. Romans chapter 8, because we have a lot to talk about, right? Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, there's how many words that are very important that every Christian needs to know? There are six words. What are these six words? Let's go through them. Romans chapter 8, what's the first word that every Christian should know? For know, and that's found in what verse? Romans eight twenty nine. and what does it say? Now the hymn there is God. For whom God did foreknow. This is refers to the concept of what? Foreknowledge. Every Christian needs to know the word foreknowledge. This is the idea that God knows what? in advance or beforehand. All right? This deals with God's knowledge. So if you're going to believe in a God, we have to decide how much knowledge God has, what does he do with that knowledge, how do we understand it. Does he have full knowledge, partial knowledge? We get into knowledge of God. What's the second word? Oh boy, nobody likes that word. All right, for whom he did foreknow, he did also what? Predestinate. Predestinate. What does predestinate mean? Predetermine beforehand, right? Predetermine beforehand. Is that that a fair, I mean, that's an oversimplification, but you get the idea. Predestinate. What's the third word? Called, all right? Those he foreknew. He predestinated and then he called. All right, what, we under, what is that calling? What does that calling entail? Who did he call? Well, he called the people he foreknew he predestinated. Called them to what? All right, we get into the idea. Those he called, what's the next word? He justified. That's the doctrine of justification. Every Christian needs to know that word. Every Christian needs to know that word, right? I mean, that's a, we could talk all day about that. Next word. Glorified. Glorified. We need to know what that means, okay? And then one last word. The elect, and that's found in verse... Verse 33. And what does it say about God electing? Who, shall lay to the of God's elect? right. who can offer any accusation to God's elect? Who are God's elect? If there are those who are called God's elect, that would imply that God did what? Elected them. So election is the next word. These are wor- Now, are, have there been any agreement in 2,000 years of church history about these words? No. Do people get very upset about these words? No very upset. So, before we can study these six words, what did I decide to do? I tried to demonstrate that the text gives you something to be worried about way before you get to these six words. And what were those concepts? Verse what? 20 Is it 22? 20 well, Verse 20 Okay, in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. I know I'm making you look at it. I'm not just reading it to you, but I do that on purpose, okay? Because I want you actually engaged, all right? Romans 8, 20. What did we learn in Romans 8, 20 that's somewhat disturbing? God subjected all of creation to vanity. Not willingly. Creation didn't choose it. All of creation has been subjected to vanity, not according to its choice. Well, so what does this begin to demonstrate something about God? That he's sovereign and works not in accordance with our will. Well, that bothers me, right? Don't you want a God that does what you want? I would prefer a God who does what I want, because I've got a lot of things I want, right? Okay? Yes? Okay? All right. But he subjected it in vanity in what way? In hope. Now, what does this indif- uh, signify? That he subjected it in vanity, but he has a purpose, a plan, and that he's going to ultimately bring hope from it being subjected into vanity. And then what did we find in the very famous verse that everyone rips out of context? Romans 8, 28. All things work together. What things? The suffering found in the previous verses work together for good. So God uses suffering to bring about good, but ultimately for what? His purpose and his glory. All of that brings up which concept of God? Providence and sovereignty. So what did we start working on? The doctrine of God's providence. And once we get into the doctrine of God's providence, what's going to happen? Is everyone going to agree? Obviously not. But it's a very important doctrine. So we need to understand it. So first we gave a definition of providence. Everybody remember the definition? We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that number one, He keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Everybody remember that? Number two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, he directs them to fulfill his purpose. Under the general category of providence, we had three subtopics, which were preservation, concurrence, and government. Everybody remember all of those? When we talked, about, we talked about preservation, God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Why does things exist according to the biblical understanding? Because God is maintaining its existence. Right? That's the Christian understanding. Everybody got that? Yes? All right. Concurrence. God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. When we talked about concurrence, what did we look at? Inanimate creation, animals, seemingly random or chance events, events fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature as well, and then we talked about the affairs of nations, and then we talked about all aspects of our lives, which then led to the big one. What about what subject? Evil. What about evil? What about evil? And that's what we are continuing to work on, all right? Is this easy? Is this, is this deep stuff to comprehend? Yes. Is this the kind of stuff typically taught in church? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. But that's the reason we're here, correct? Because we want to do things a little differently. All right. So are you ready? All right. I'm going to do just a quick review to get us on, on, the, on the same page. But what are we trying to figure out this morning? The thesis this morning is very simple. We have to figure out what the Bible teaches about God because we can't place our definition upon God. If we place our definition upon God, then all we are doing is creating our own God, right? Remember the famous saying, God created man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since, because all we do is take God, and then we recreate him into our own likeness to do what we want. Well, you can, you can do that, but your God is basically yourself. And if you think that you're a good God, I, I guess that's great, but I, I have a have a hard time accepting you being a very good God, right? Because you're not doing much... <laughs> you, whatever criticism you have about the true God, you're not doing much better yourself, correct? Right? You, you, you know your own limitations and your own weaknesses. So we got to figure this out. So God's providence. All right, here we go. All right, this is... Man, this is not easy stuff. I'm going to make it very simple. This is not easy. All right, here we go. What about evil? If God does indeed cause through his providential activity, everything that comes about in the world, then the question arises, what is the relationship between God and evil in the world? Does God actually cause the evil actions that people do? If he does, then is God not responsible for sin? Right? Those are very important questions. Okay? Very important questions. So let me just remind you a couple of things. Everyone, atheist, agnostic, everyone agrees bad things happen in the world. Yes? Everyone agrees that, now now this is where it gets bizarre, but everyone will agree that even some actions are considered evil. They may even use the term evil or bad or wrong. They're going uh, pr- pr- to offer some moral judgment on the action. Yes? Anyone sits in a history class and they learn about Hitler exterminating 6 million Jews during the Holocaust. I think most people say that that is wrong, evil, bad. If you hear about human beings being purchased and sold as property, people say that that is wrong and is Evil, right? So everyone agrees that some actions are wrong and evil. Now, the minute you say that, what is required? let's just remind ourselves, what is required for you to even be able to say that something is wrong and evil? You've got to have a standard by which to argue that it's wrong or evil. So where's the standard? Well, you say, well, I believe it's wrong and evil. Okay, but what if the people at the time didn't believe it's wrong and evil? If your standard is... Is implied upon them, then why isn't their standard implied or imposed upon you? So first, you have to have a standard in which to say anything is wrong or evil. Now you have three. You have three. You have a couple of options to establish the standard. Remember, what are the options to establish a moral standard? The majority of people make the decision. Well, if the majority of people decide to exterminate an entire race of people, then you couldn't say it's wrong. All right. So that there's plenty of times where we agree that the majority was wrong. Yes. All right. How about the minority? Do we like that rule? Well, if the minority makes the decision, then I guess the KKK is in really good shape today. Right. Because they're in the minority. But we would say that they are wrong. So yeah, we would even use the word evil. Okay. so the majority doesn't work. The minority doesn't work. So then what's your third option? The individual determines morality. Well, if the individual t- de- determines morality, how does that work out? Well, then you determine your morality, I determine my morality, and if my morality says that you've got $50 in your pocket and I'm going to hit you over the head and take it, you can't tell me that I'm wrong because it's my morality. But, but does my morality override your morality? Who's morality? It's like the purge, right? Okay, if you've ever seen the movies or the TV show. okay, Nobody likes that concept. So majority doesn't always work. Minority doesn't always work. Individual doesn't always work. So then how can you say that is evil? You have to have a moral structure. And the other option is a transcendent standard that is outside of the majority, outside of the minority, outside of the individual. And then we all have to say that's the standard and then we are all bound to it. But every, I want to make sure everyone says there's evil, there's bad. I mean, people, atheists will do this all the time. Well, if God is so wonderful, why is there evil in the world? And I always stop and go, how do you define evil? Everyone's great at saying God's doing something wrong, but they can't tell me how, what's their basis of determining that God did something. You've got to have a basis for saying God did something wrong, correct? This is just basic logic philosophy 101, Okay. So, we all know that there's bad in the world. Everyone agrees? All right. So, we have a, let's say we have a standard. Let's say, now Christians come along and say, well, the standard is God. Right? And we feel good. Right? Woo, look at us. We're so smart. We've got a standard. You don't have a moral standard. We have a moral standard. We're so much smarter than you, and we think we're going to get an A in philosophy class. Right? We think we're so smart. And then the philosophy, philosophy professor comes along and goes, well, wait a minute. If your God is the creator... All knowing, all powerful, and sovereign. Let's go with his moral standard. How moral is a God who has a moral standard if somehow evil exists in the world that he's supposedly in charge of? So then the question is, what is the relationship between evil and God? And then Christians go, uh uh um, um I think uh, uh what, we're having having a pizza party, i got to go, okay? And then we're we're done, right? Because we don't know how to answer this. So then we get into the idea of God's providence. So we all know evil exists, yes? We also, as Christians, believe God exists. How do the two work? That's what we have to figure out, and this is the doctrine of what? God's providence, okay? Everybody got that? And approaching this question... It is best first to read the passages of scripture that most directly address it. We can begin by looking at several passages that affirm God did indeed cause evil events to come about and evil deeds to be done, but we must remember that in all these passages it is clear that scripture nowhere shows God is directly doing anything evil, but rather is bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures." There's a lot there to take apart, but that's okay. Moreover, Scripture never blames God for evil or shows God as taking pleasure in evil, and Scripture never excuses human beings for the wrong they do. However, we understand God's relationship to evil, we must never come to the point where we think that we are not responsible for the evil that we do or that God takes pleasure in evil or is to be blamed for it. Such a conclusion is contrary to Scripture. Now, that's all easy to say, But it's hard to try to uh, reconcile and figure out. So where did we start last week? We talked about Joseph. All right, now I'm not going to go read the scriptures again because we spent all last Sunday on it. So let me just review. Joseph has a number of brothers. Yes, Joseph is the father likes Joseph, correct? He gets a coat of many colors, right? He has a dream. Right? He goes out and he tells his brother this wonderful dream. Right? And the idea is the dream came from whom? God. And the dream seems to indicate what's going to happen. They're going to bow to him. Right? Now, the the brother's like, look, everyone's going to bow down to me. And do the brothers go, whoa, tell us more about this dream from God. They're like, what? Who do you think you are? Right? And so they come up with a great idea. What's their great idea? First, they want to kill his brother. That's that's taking it pretty far, but they want to kill his brother. The one thing I love about the Bible, the Bible does not put any pretend that people are good people. It does not, and there's no pretending in the Bible. It shows how messed up we all are. They decide they want to kill their brother. They ultimately sell him into... Slavery. He goes into slavery, then he gets and things start working out good for him, and then he gets accused of you know assaulting a woman in a very not good way. He ends up in prison, he ends up in prison, then he gets forgotten, and he's and all these horrible things happen, and ultimately Joseph ends up where at before it's all said and done. Like number two in charge of what country? Egypt. Whoa! And he also seems, and he, given more visions from God, he's able to instruct the Egyptians that what's coming—a great famine—and famine. he tells them to prepare. So guess what? Joseph's brothers and his father and all of them are still back in and where they were, and they realize, wait a minute, we're starving. There's no food. So where's their food in Egypt? Who do they don't? Who do they not understand is sitting there? Their brothers. brothers, and the, and they finally show up. This reunion, it's, you know, tense. And ultimately, what does Joseph say about everything that occurred to him? You did evil, but God meant it for good. Demonstrating that who was in charge of the entire process? God. Raises 800 million philosophical questions, right? Could God have uh, ensured that Egypt had plenty of food so that people could have gotten there without Joseph having to suffer all of that? The answer is yes. However, God worked the entire plan to get Joseph from there to Egypt through going through all of that. So God ultimately is in charge, but he's in charge and uh, in, in charge in and through evil and sinful acts. Does that excuse the evil and sinful acts? Does not excuse them, but it demonstrates God is somehow working in and above and through them. Is that comforting? It's confusing. Sometimes it's com- it's comforting for this. If I throw out God, what do I still have in life? Pain, suffering. It, it, the pain and suffering doesn't go away with God or without God. But with God, at least I know that there's some something is working in and through it for a purpose. Is it my purpose? No. Is it my glory? Is it my honor? No. So that sometimes can even make us more angry because like what I want to get something from this but what's supposed to ultimately derive from it is God's glory. So that that's where we stopped last week. Now we're going to pick up some more scriptures. Now I know this is going to be pain painful and tedious, but we have to work through all the scriptures so that we can draw some kind of important discussion here about this. All right? Everybody there? Okay. Now go to Exodus chapter 4. Now, once Joseph is in Egypt, what does this ultimately bring about? Israel basically ends up in Egypt, and everything goes wonderful until what happens? Basically, a new government takes over, and they they don't care about Joseph or anything that he did, right? And so the next thing you know, what happens to all the Israelites who are in Egypt? They're enslaved. Well, that's not good, right? That's not good, is it? Right? That's, that's, that's kind of a bad thing, all right? So, now look, listen, this is very important. Now, they're there, Who's it, and Pharaoh's in charge, correct? All right, he's in charge. Israelites are enslaved people. Bad things are happening, correct? Even their children are being killed, correct? Bad things are happening. So, not a good situation. Now, you could think of, well, wait a minute. They, they ended up there because God provided food for them in Egypt. Why didn't he provide food for them somewhere? Like it raises a million ethical questions, but they're enslaved, right? And Pharaoh's in charge. And then what do we read? Go to Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. Exodus 4.21. Let me read it. Everybody there? And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou Now, he raises up Moses, right? Moses is going to be used to deliver the people of Israel. Correct? Right? That's good news. Now, they've been enslaved for hundreds of years, but, you know, hey, at least someone's going to finally come along. And look what God says to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thy hand, but I will... Harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. (laughs) What? Now, a couple of things. What do we derive from this immediately? Who's in charge of of man's heart? God, who can override what the, the man's heart wants to do? Now, people will make all kinds of excuses about this, but the text says, who hardened his heart? God. There's some, uh, a number of other scriptures uh, that you can look at. Go to, uh, I believe, Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. What do you read there? I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Who's the I there? God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. All right, look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. What do you read in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12? <laughs> the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, right? How about uh, chapter 10, verse 20? Exodus chapter 10, verse 20. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? How about in verse, I believe, verse 27? How about chapter 11, I believe, verse 10? <laughs> okay is it, is it being repeated a lot? Okay, How about uh, chapter 14 verse 4? Exodus 14, four? Exodus 14:4? Our heart and Pharaoh's heart, okay? And how about I believe 148? And I think it says something like the Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh king of Egypt, right? Alright, so what, what can we derive from all of that? That in this story, who's, who is actively involved in the story? God. And who is actively involved in the story keeping Pharaoh from letting the people go? God. And you can say, why would he just let the people go? Like, why would he harden his heart? Why wouldn't he just let him go? Because God is working things in what way? His purpose. His purpose. And ultimately, just think about what happens. He hardens his heart so that he can continue to do what? Well, miracles. Let's call them, pour out miraculous plagues upon Egypt. Correct? That bring about what kind of things? Death and destruction. Would we agree with that? Yes. Now, why would he do it? That seems horrible. Yes? Now, we think from reading the text, that the reason he pours out all of these horrible plagues upon Egypt is for what purpose? All the plagues seem to be an attack upon what? The Egyptian gods. So really, this is a religious war, right? God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh so that he will not let the people go, even though he wants them ultimately to be let go, because in the meantime, he's going to pull out plagues that attack Egyptian deities. Right? Goes after the Egyptian deities by turning the Nile River to to blood. Basically, they they worship the Nile River. It's like the river is bleeding to death. Right? They attacked cattle, which they worshiped the cattle. Uh, They had gods of the cattle. Their gods couldn't stop and do anything. So ultimately, he does it for a purpose to glorify himself. And you can say, well, that's horrible because people are suffering. Yes, it is horrible from that perspective. And we we could get into a whole discussion about it but it demonstrates God's sovereignty. However, this is very important to note in the text. And now this may get you a little bit more confused, but let's go through this. So, how many how many times there does the text say that God hardened his heart? If you counted those, see 421, 73, 912, 1020, 10, 1027, 1110, and 144 and I believe 148. So, like eight times maybe. All right? Now, it is sometimes argued that scripture also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So look at Exodus 8:15. Let's see if this is true. Exodus 8:15 I know people online like when I prefer to read it, but I like everyone reading it. I'll read this here, Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Who hardened his heart? Look at verse uh, 32 of chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. Exodus 8.32. And Pharaoh did what? Hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Everybody see that? How about chapter 9, verse 34? And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hell and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart. All right, well, now we got two concepts going on here, Correct? How do we, how do we handle this? Let's see what Grudem says in his systematic theology. He says this. It is some, it's sometimes argued that scripture also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. I just proved that that's true. And that God's act of hardening Pharaoh's heart was only in response to the initial rebellion and hardness of the heart that Pharaoh himself exhibited of his own free will. But it should be noted that God promises that he would harden Pharaoh's heart Uh, The promises that God would harden his heart are made long before Scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. All right. So God promised that he would harden his heart before Pharaoh ever hardened his heart. Everybody understand that? So in other words, whatever Pharaoh was hardening his heart, who initially started the process? God. All right. So God is involved in the process from the very beginning. And we can't we can't just skip that. Moreover, our analysis of concurrence given above in which both divine and human agents can cause the same event should show us that both factors can be true at the same time even when Pharaoh hardens his own heart. That is not inconsistent with saying that God is causing Pharaoh to do this and thereby God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. In other words, concurrence would say Pharaoh is hardening his heart but who's causing him to harden his heart? God. Does that make sense? Alright. Finally, if someone were to object that God is justly is just intensifying the evil desires and or that he is just intensifying the evil desires and choices that we are that were already in Pharaoh's heart, then this kind of action would still in theory at least cover all the evil in the world today, since all people have evil desires and their hearts and all people do in fact make evil choices. Alright? So here we so the bottom line is no matter how you try to get around it, you can't get around it, who's hard in his heart? God. Now, what does this demonstrate? Providence and sovereignty. Yes, God is in charge. Does it excuse, does, is Pharaoh given an excuse for it? Is Pharaoh excused for this? No. In fact, I think by saying he's hard in his own heart, is that's the text is arguing that who's also, also responsible for this? Pharaoh. How can Pharaoh be responsible and God be responsible at the same time? Confusing, but we have to acknowledge the situation. So far, so good? All right. Well, we'll we'll flesh this out in a minute. I'm just trying to give the basic facts here first. All right. So what was God's purpose in this? Paul reflects on Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, and says, go to Romans chapter 9. Go to Romans chapter 9, verse 17. What do we have here in Romans 9, 17, everyone? Ah, now this is very important because Romans 8 is going to give us the six words that everyone's going to get upset about, correct? So in Romans 9, after those six words, he's going to pick this subject up in a different way, all right? Here we go, Romans chapter 9, verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose... Have I raised thee up that I might show power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Wow. What does that indicate? God putting there, and why did he put Pharaoh there? So he was going to use Pharaoh... Brought Pharaoh to power so that God can manifest his power in and through Pharaoh. Pharaoh was raised up for a specific purpose. His heart was hardened for a specific purpose. Whose purpose was working in and through it all? God's purpose. Now, you may not like that, but that's what it says. Okay, look at the next verse. What does he say in Romans 9, 18? All right. He has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he's going to harden who he wants to harden. Who did he have mercy on? Israel. Who did he harden? Egypt. Not just Pharaoh, though. He goes beyond Pharaoh. In fact, there's. I think it's back in Exodus. Let me see if I can find it really quick. Just because I'll add this to the, the the story. Exodus. Go to I believe it's chapter fourteen. Exodus fourteen. I believe verse seventeen. I got to check it to make sure I'm right. Exodus fourteen seventeen. And behold, this is God speaking. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and that they shall follow them. And I will give me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts and upon his chariot and upon his horsemen. Who did he hardens? Not just Pharaoh. Who else does he harden? The Egyptians. And he hardens him for what purpose? To go after them. And where are they going to chase them to? into the Red Sea, and then they're all going to be drowned. <laughs> Isn't this wonderful, comforting stuff that you never hear in church? Right? Isn't this, this is stuff no one talks about, but it's right there in the Bible. Who hardened Pharaoh? God. Who hardened the people? God. And where did he lead the people and Pharaoh? Ultimately, he, allowed, he hardened their hearts so they, they would do what? What? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. He does. If you think about it, yeah. They give them all of their money, right? And then next thing you know, they're like, "Wait a minute, what did we do?" Right? In America, they say, "Let them go." We, we we want Israel out of here. And then they're like, "Wait, well, we just let all of our slaves go." What? Ah! Okay. And then they get mad and they start chasing them to lead them right to where the Red Sea to be ultimately what. Destroyed. There's another verse that, that picks up this same concept. Go to Psalm, I think it's 105. Psalm 105, I believe it's verse 25. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Psalm 105 is verse 25, and what does it say? Someone say it out loud so that everybody online can hear. Psalm 105. whose hearts he turned to hate his people. Yep. Who did, he turned their hearts to hate his people. Who's his people? Yep, exactly. So he turns their hearts to hate whom? He turns the hearts of Egyptians to hate who? His people, Israel. So who, who demonstrates? Who's in charge of the entire story? I mean, let's go all the way back. Again, how, do the, how does Israel end up in Egypt? A famine. Could, could God have overcome the famine? Yes. He causes, I mean, obviously you have to put char, God in charge of the famine, correct? All right. Where do, who does he allow to have food? Egypt. How did he do that? By sending Joseph there. How did he get Joseph there? Through the worst set of circumstances that you can even comprehend. I don't like it. It's the way it works. Now Joseph is there. Now there's food. Where does Israel go to get the food? Egypt. Where do they go from there? They stay. Where do they end up? In 400 years, as slaves. Why do they end up as slaves? Well, Psalm 105 seems to indicate God turned their hearts to do what? To hate his people. That's not, that's not pleasant, is it? Right? And then Pharaoh comes along, and what does God do? He raises Pharaoh up for one specific purpose. So they can harden his heart, so that he can ultimately demonstrate his power on whom? On Pharaoh. He turns the people, their hearts, to go after Israel, to pursue them into the Red Sea, so that they can ultimately be destroyed. Why, for what purpose? For God's power and God's glory. Now does anybody like that story? I mean like, come on like, look let's we don't put we don't wear church mask here right? I hate church masks I hate church answers i don 't like the story. the story bothers me in so many different directions why because it demonstrates God is in and working through these events that we don't like now What's the, what's the positive in it? Let, let's, look at it from, let's look at it from two perspectives. What is the positive? Now, what is this? Let's just, before we go any further, what verse does everything we just looked at, there's one verse that summarizes everything we just read. It's in Ephesians, that God works all things. See if you can find it in Ephesians. I believe it's chapter one. He works all things according to... People on the internet, if they answer before all of you, you're going to all be excommunicated. Okay? All right? And I know, I know uh, we got listeners. I know there's a listener in Tennessee right now that's probably already answered the question. Okay? You just go ahead and delete your answer now. Okay? We're not leaving this church until everyone in my church finds it. We've only quoted it nine billion times, and that's not even hyperbole. God works all things. According to... Uh, his good pleasure, verse nine. Okay. Re- can I read the whole thing? Uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Okay. I think there's another one that says something a little differently. Okay. That's not the one I was looking for. There we go. Okay. Which says... Okay, God works all things according to what? To the, of his own will. to the counsel of his own will. God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. That's Ephesians 1.11. Everyone needs to have Ephesians 1.11 memorized, okay? If you don't have Ephesians 1.11 me- memorized, then half of the Bible makes absolutely no sense. Does the story of Joseph make sense without Ephesians 1.11? No, it doesn't make any sense. Right? Forget, forget Joseph does... Genesis at all makes any sense. No. He works all things according to the good pleasure, his good pleasure, his purpose, his will. All right? So, let's go back to the story of... of now, now, let's go back to... Oh, yeah, Joseph acknowledged it. Yeah, Joseph acknowledged it. Hey, you doing all kinds of evil things, but who was working in and through all of your evil actions? God. You were doing evil things. Their will was to do what? To inflict evil, but God overrode their evil intention to do what? To bring about his purpose. They're, they had a will, God overrode their will. Everybody got that? All right, Ephesians one eleven. everyone have this down. Now, here we go, thinking caps on. You ready? All right, pretend you're in a philosophy class, right? And philosophy professors can be mean, all right? So here we go. All right. Based off what we just read, who was in charge of everything pertaining to Pharaoh in Egypt? God. Correct? God worked the whole situation out for his purpose. This idea, this concept of God working in and everything, what is the positive that you can take from it, and what is the negative that you can take from it? And I know, as a pastor, I'm not supposed to even give you the opportunity to express the negative, but that would be ridiculous not to do that. What would be the positive and what would be the negative? Just this, this co- whole concept that we just talked about. I mean, we saw it played out in, in Israel, correct? I mean, all of those verses we looked at, who, who's hardening? God. Who made them hate Israel? God. Who rose Pharaoh up for a purpose? God, right? Agreed? There's no way to get around it. I mean, the text, it's, how many different ways can the text be stated? All right, so think about it. What's the positive from this idea, this doctrine of God's providence and he's in charge of everything? All right. the 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 positive is somehow there's a purpose. There's there, there, God's purpose. God has a will in everything that is occurring. That is a positive. What's the negative? The negative is God has a purpose and will and everything. But it's a positive and a negative, right? I mean, I I don't. I don't want to go back through all the stories, but if I just take the horrible things that happened in my childhood, I mean, I don't even want to go through the way I was raised. It was messed up, garbage, (laughs) horrible, horrible, horrible things happened. All right? You're getting tied up and burned with a curling iron. That's not a wonderful experience. Okay? Right? Now, I can say, well, God had a purpose and will in all of it. That sounds good. But then I can also turn around and say, God had a purpose and will in this? Right? I can say it in a positive way and it sounds good. See, in church, I'm just supposed to say it in the positive way, right? Nobody's like, oh, amen. God had a purpose and will. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> if you're Pharaoh, it's horrible. If you're the Egyptians, it's horrible, right? But, I mean, even if you're the ones who suffered for 400 years, it's horrible too, right? A lot of people died in slavery. Kids were drowned, Right? Right. That's horrible. So, you see, you can say it in a positive way. Well, God has a purpose and will in everything. But wait a minute. God had a purpose and will? Why did we have to be in slavery for 400 years? You see how you can flip it around? I mean, we've talked about the book of Job a million times. You talk about a book that will cause your brain just to leak out the side of your head. You say, okay, so here's Job. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's godly. He's got a nice family. He's got money. He's got property. Everything's going great for Job. And he's just living his life. And then all of a sudden, one day, Satan is there. God's like, hey, Satan, you ever consider my servant Job? The worst words ever mentioned uttered in the entire Bible, right? Hey, have you ever... Satan's not there to talk about Job. Who points out Job? God. And then, then Satan's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, the only reason he praises you, the only reason he follows you is because of, look at all the wonderful things you've done for him. And God's like, okay, well, guess what? It's your lucky day. You can do whatever you want, you just can't kill him. And then what starts happening? All of his kids die. Not just one, all ten. Okay, that's horrible, right? That's horrific. Right? Not just that. What else happens? All of his material wealth gone. Material property gone. His servants gone. His health gone. His wife, like, what does his wife say? His wife's so comforting. Curse God and die you know, put yourself out of my misery. It's almost like, that's what she said. You know, put yourself out of my misery because I'm miserable watching you. That's what, what a godly woman she was, right? Okay, what a, what a great comfort she was, okay? And it, it's all horrible. And then, so, and then his friends show up, great, you know, the, 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 the people from the local church show up, right? And they're great for a couple of days, right? What do they do for a couple of days? The silence, they'll say a word. Like, okay, whew. so those are some good friends. To me, the friends who don't say anything when you're suffering are better than the friends who speak when you suffer. Okay, so usually saying anything is the dumbest thing you can do, right? Just don't say a word, right? So they're there. Then they start talking. All right, they got to talk. Woohoo! And why do they have to talk? Because Christians think we always have to give an answer, right? We think we always have to give an answer. What do they see? Suffering, pain. And in their little theological minds, who can't be at fault for this? God can't be at fault. So if it's not God's fault, it's Job's fault. Job, you're a sinner. You did this, you did... Not obviously ignoring the fact that they're sinners as well, but isn't it always amazing how you can always see someone else's sin before you see your own. Isn't that amazing? I love, love that. All right, so you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Job endures, and it's just... What's so horrible about the book of Job is you read all of how many words are just people blah, 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 talking while someone is suffering. Like they're having, it's like a theological, it's like a seminary classroom of theology and everyone's arguing. It's like there's someone suffering and we're going to have a theological argument, right? And they're all doing, and why, so what are they more concerned with? Really, if you think about it, they're more concerned about their understanding of God than they are about Job's suffering because they've got to, they're have got they trying to process it, right? It can't be God's fault. So it goes on and on and on and on and on. Job is pretty upset about through it all, right? I wish I was never born. I wish I was dead. I mean, he's pretty bothered by it all, right? And then ultimately, he decides to do what? He comes to God with a million questions, right? I got some questions for you, God. All right. And now we're getting to the end of the book, and we're like, okay, here we go. God's going to step in, and he's going to explain it all, right? He's going to say, okay, Job, let me explain. I have providence, and providence works through concurrence, okay, government. No, is he going to give him a theological uh, lesson? No, well, he does, he does, but it's, it's the kind of theology lesson that a lot of people in church doesn't like. And the theology lesson goes like this. Okay, Job, let me ask you some questions. And he asks him one question after another question after another question after another question. And what can Job do with all of the questions God asked? He has no answer. Because basically, what's the the goal of those questions? To demonstrate, Job, you're what? The creator. Or you're the creature and I am the creator and I'm going to subject you to whatever I want to subject you to, and you don't get to say anything about it. And in Job, it doesn't even explain what happened. He doesn't even explain the whole conversation between him and Satan. He doesn't explain anything. Just question what. and question. And then Job's finally at the end going, so Job finally does what? He says, I'm going to not speak. I'm just going to shut up. Does Job ever get an answer? Does he even get an explanation? The reader of the book has a better explanation than Job ever gets. You talk about a ripoff, right? We get a better explanation than Job. Now, a lot of people say, "Well, at the end he gets a new family," but he. Everybody tries to try, try to somehow make the story positive. There's nothing positive in it. But what's the what's the what's the? If you were to summarize the message of Job, what's the summary? Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to what? His purpose, his will. Whose will was being worked through the book of Job? God's. Was it Job's? Job would have never chosen any of it. In fact, but, but even if he would have chosen it, he wasn't even given a choice. Hey, Hey, Job, look, I'm having this argument with Satan, and I need you to work with me here because I need to prove a point. He's not giving... No, it's like I'm just going to prove a point. Now, how could God prove the point? Because God knew what was going to happen before it happened. Well, that gets into now we get into now we get providence. We get to sovereign decrees. We get into a lot of things. But the point is, is God works all things out. So, is it positive? Yes, I find comfort in some that God somehow in all the chaos and all the problems and all the pain and all the suffering, that God somehow is working in and through it. The problem is that also leads me at times to be frustrated that God is a sovereign working in and through it. It's a double-edged sword. But here's a very important point. All right, I've got to end with this, all right? And I know that we're really, and, and Grudem is doing this on purpose. The systematic theology goes to these sections of scripture and they're gonna, it's going to establish the same concept over and over and over. And you're gonna feel like we well, were saying the same thing every week. We have to be told the same thing every week. Cause you know how hard it is to ever get this in your mind and process it? It's almost impossible. But let's, let's go ahead and, and do this. I wanna just destroy something. Alright? I'm gonna just blow this up. For way too long, pastors stand behind pulpits and we preach Christianity in a way that seems to indicate that, hey, here's, and, and whether we say it this way, this is the way it's preached, and you've probably heard this. Okay, here's Satan and lost people. Everything for them is bad, right? And if you're, if you're lost and you're under the control of Satan, you're in a bad place, and you're going to have, your life's not, you're never going to be happy, you're never going to have purpose, you're never going to have me. But if you become a Christian, whoo hoo everything's gonna be wonderful right you're gonna have purpose you're gonna have meaning all your suffering's gonna go away and we almost sell it like come to jesus and then to make everything better well there's about a million problems with that all right because coming to christ you don't come to christ to make everything better in your practical life we come to christ for one purpose Because we're sinners and we cannot save ourselves and we have offended a holy God and we stand condemned by that holy God and the only way to save ourselves is not how good I can be or how many times I go to church or anything I can do. It's about trusting in Christ who came and died and gives me his perfect righteousness accredited to my account. I come for salvation. But we've turned Christianity as you come for all of these. If you come to Christianity, you'll be a better person and you'll be more moral. Oh, you struggle with this sin? If you become a Christian, you'll never struggle with that sin again. We sell it like an info commercial and it's all made of lies that we sell. That's not the way it works. You come to Christ for salvation and guess what happens when you become a Christian? Is your life still filled with pain, problems, difficulty, and tragedy? Yes. Not, not guaranteed, but yeah, you can't. Can. In other words, well, even, you're going to experience some kind of difficulty in life. I mean, you're going to experience difficulty. And then you're going to experience some kind of pain. Now, some, some people it may be even far, look, in many cases, the things in my home, look, my, things were horrible in my home. When I became a Christian, it went from bad to worse. So it got so bad that I had to live with a different family. And then things really got bad when the next thing you know, you know, my mom's dead. And I'm like, okay, well, that's worked out really great. I became a Christian. Thank you, Lord. I prayed and prayed and prayed. He didn't heal her. She died because there's no guarantee for that. I didn't understand any of this concept. So I came up with a great spiritual solution, which was a pistol to the head and try to pull a bull- put a bullet in my head and kill myself. I had to go to a psychiatric hospital for eight weeks. I didn't understand anything because I thought Christianity was supposed to do What? Make it all better. And it didn't make it all better. Because Christianity doesn't promise to make it all better. Was Joseph a believer in God? That That was a life journey. Was Job a believer in God? Yeah. All the apostles, were they believers in God? What happened to all the apostles? All killed, all murdered. John was exiled after being tortured. Right? That didn't work out so great, did it? Peter crucified upside down according to tradition. Okay, John, yeah, beheaded, stoned, killed. Stephen, that worked out really great for Stephen, getting rocks thrown inside of your head until you're dead. Yeah, that worked out great. Right? Suffering, suffering, suffering. Yeah, all kinds of horrible things happened. Right? Killed all kinds of different ways. Now, because Christianity is not the guarantee. So guess what? No matter Christian or non-Christian, what's going to happen in life? Pain, suffering, and difficulty. Christianity provides you two things. One, a moral structure in which to say that is sinful and that is evil and that is wrong. Two, an understanding that somehow in the midst of it, I don't understand it, doesn't always make sense. God is working all things according to his purpose and his pleasure and his good will. There's a purpose and pleasure and, and will in and it. I don't understand it. Does it mean I'm going to like it? Let's make it very clear. I, is it, does it mean we're going to like it? Is it going to mean that we, we want it? No. But guess what? Remove God, you're still going to suffer. The suffering's not going to change, right? So Christianity at least says God is working in and through it. Do I wish you would do things in a different way? if you if you don't say you, I wish God would work things in a different way, I can raise my hand right now and say I wish he would work things in a different way, okay, but he doesn't what is the, what does romans seem to what does this uh story about Pharaoh seems to indicate God hardens whom he hardens will have mercy in whom he will have mercy. He does as he wills did he do what will, uh, Pharaoh willed? no, did he do what the Egyptians willed no now you could say some in some ways. It was their sinful nature, but I'm saying God was ultimately in charge. He was I mean, they didn't will to be destroyed, right? Okay. So God ultimately did their, his will. And, and for Israel, you could say they got their will, but it took 400 years. They probably would have chosen a different path. Didn't the death of the right, yeah. Pharaoh wouldn't have chosen the death of his first, all Or any of the firstborn sons yeah, in Egypt. right? And the Israelites wouldn't have chosen their children to be killed either. But the text still says who is working in and above it all. It's, isn't it so hard to wrap your mind around? All right. We'll have to stop right there. But we have to, we have to embrace that. Again, what did I start off by saying? You, 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 either you define God or the, the authority defines God. And we believe the Bible defines who God is and how he works. Yes? All right. We didn't even get to wherever else we needed to go, but we'll stop right there. Okay. I'm going to make sure that there's no questions or comments. Give me one second. Okay, good. All right. All right. Any questions here? All right. You're saying, you didn't give me a very good answer. Well, do you want truth or do you want answers? Right? Guess what? Truth doesn't always provide you. Answer. I know that sounds <laughs> contradictory, but it's true. Truth doesn't always make it sense. Like, if I can give you simple answers, but then there's no truth in them. Some people want simple answers versus truth. And the truth of Scripture is, is man. And look, we're not, even, we didn't even, we're not even done with the list of Scriptures that talk about this kind of thing. There's so many. We, the, Joseph, the whole story of, of the Exodus is just crazy. It's just crazy everything that takes place, right? And then, yeah. We can, we can go further on. All right, let's stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, if we learn anything this morning is that you are God and we are not. You work all things according to your purpose, your will, for your glory. And Lord, if until we understand that, then we don't have a correct relationship with you. As long as we try to make you into our image, control you, mold you, tell you what you will do, then it's us not relinquishing the desire to be God. And what's in in every heart in this room is a desire to be God. We want to be in charge of everything. We want everything to work our way. We want our will. And if there's anything that we are confronted with when we read Scripture, is that your will, you are God, and you are sovereign. And our job is to surrender and submit to that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,